Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's October, so we're continuing with our Halloween, spooky, ghostly kind of theme. And today we wanted to explore a somewhat ghostly topic that ties into neuroscience, to uh, stuff we've talked about recently on the Invention Podcast with the history of photography. But before we get into that, I wanted to start with a question to kind of orient us here. And that question is, what is it that makes somebody skilled at an art like realistic drawing or realistic sculpture? I should say, by the way, I am not skilled at this at all. I cannot draw realistically for the life of me. In fact, uh, when I try to draw pictures of people, it the <laughs> it's a source of great amusement to Rachel. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm the same way. I can I can draw a pretty mean goblin, but um, I can't really draw a, a, a human. My uh, my son, uh, who's seven, is already a better, uh, better uh, artist when it comes to depicting actual human beings than I am. But but obviously, so a huge part of what's going on here is is practice, right? You got to learn techniques. But another part of this, I think, could just be thought of as some kind of motor power of translation. Like, how do you take an image represented in your brain, and it's in your brain either way, whether you're currently looking at it or calling up out of a memory or an imagination. Uh, either way, the, the image is coming from your brain, and then it's being translated somehow through a series of hand motions into a physical object in the world, whether that's a sculpture, painting, or drawing. Like there's some kind of skill there that I think remains ineffable to us. It's mysterious. Sometimes it's even kind of spooky because we don't understand what's happening with that translation process. But what if there were no translation process? What if there were no way for clumsy arms and hands and uh, failures of technique to impede the physical manifestation of what you've got in your mind's eye? What if we could just project the objects of the mind's eye directly onto the physical world? Would such a thing be possible? And if so, would such a power be in a way terrifying, sort of godlike in the worst and most ancient sense? Ah, and here you're getting into the uh, uh, the, the Halloween uh, aspects of this topic. This is the reason that we have decided to approach this uh, during the month of October. Exactly, because this power does show up in horror fiction. One place that you might have encountered it is in the books or the movies. Uh, there have been several different series at this point. But The Ring, the story of The Ring, the, the, the scary ghost girl who can print media with her brain. She can psychically print images onto photographs or onto the wall of a barn or onto a videotape. She can just make a videotape without filming it just straight out of her mind's eye. Of course, this is played up for horror in the film. And I, w I sort of stand by taking it in that direction. I think if anybody actually had this power, it would be horrifying, <laughs> and it would be it would be a little irritating to everyone who's, who's put a lot of time and effort into honing their craft, right? Um, 
<laughs> so it's possible you're you're familiar with The Ring uh, via Gore Verbinski's 2002 remake, The Ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where I saw it for the first time. Me too. But you also may have uh, seen it uh, by watching the original Japanese horror film uh, directed by Hideo Nakata. Uh, this came out in 1998, and I, I, I severely hope that if you if you did see the original Japanese version back in the late 90s, you watched it on a, a crummy dubbed VHS tape because that <laughs> right. would be most appropriate. Right. Uh, because either way, if you haven't seen the movies or read the, see the uh, the original Japanese movie was also based on a book by, uh, by Koji Suzuki. But uh, in any case, the story is about a cursed videotape that is made by this ghost girl. She uses the psychic power of projecting her thoughts directly onto media to make a, a videotape that kills the people who watch it. Yeah, a, a cursed videotape containing disturbing – it's basically a disturbing, surrealistic art video. Mm-hmm. Uh, kills you in seven days. So there's kind of a – uh, what do you call it in, in medicinal terms? Uh, delayed reaction. Delayed effects. Delayed yeah. effects. <laughs> yeah. uh, it takes that long to work through your system. You know, time so, to release. Sometimes <laughs> art is like that. It's time release. You, uh-huh. know, you go, you see it at the museum and you're like, I don't really know how, what, what I, how I feel about this or, or you know, how I think about my, this piece and how it relates to me. And then seven days later, uh, it kicks in and you die uh, with a weird look <laughs> on your face. But yeah, this is basically an update of a very old notion, right, of a haunted object or of haunted media, uh, only instead of a dark and magical book, instead of something like, uh, you know, the Necronomicon or, uh, you know, the Book of Sand mm-hmm. or any of these other uh, treatments, we have a dark and magical video recording and it unleashes a world of terror and death. It's an inherently compelling idea in horror, I think, actually. Some piece of media, whether it's a book or now uh, a movie, I think there there's some is there a Stephen King story with like a painting that kills you or something? Uh, there's the the Reaper's image. Oh, that's about a mirror. A, a yeah. mirror, and it's uh, one think, of one of King's best short stories. I highly recommend it. I agree. Maybe that is what I was thinking of. That is a fantastic story. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, the idea of like a a work of art or something that cannot be experienced without cursing or killing you. Yeah, that's scary. It's also fertile ground for any kind of metaphor that the artist wants to sow about. Uh, you know, about art itself and the right. way it affects and in the art, viewer. And yeah. art does have an effect on us. I mean, uh, in, there's an old episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, where Julie and I discussed Stendhal syndrome mm-hmm. and some of its related uh, alleged syndromes. You know, it deals with the reality that, yes, yeah, sometimes great works of art, uh, you know, with a, and, and great works of art with appropriate priming mm-hmm. uh, can overwhelm us, can have a physical reaction on us. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not unrealistic. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I want to say about that uh, Gore Verbinski remake of The Ring. While I don't inherently love the idea of just like American remakes of foreign films just to sort of Americanize it mm-hmm. uh, because it had only been like a few years since the original film had been made at that point. Right, it, it and they seemed, Americanized the heck out of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but at the same time, one thing I will defend about it is it is a very um, visually imaginative film. Like it's got great – creepy abstract imagery in it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Great, great visuals, great performances uh, and uh, wonderful special effects. Uh, th- that remake, I remember, really had an effect on me. It was the last time a horror film like made me sleep with the lights on. Yeah. Uh, so I, I look back fondly on it for that reason. However, I have to say certain aspects of the film stuck with me and others I kind of forgot about. Mm-hmm. Like some of you might be like, oh, yeah, I guess that girl did write video 
tapes with her mind. Uh-huh. Like that I kind of forgot about. I also kind of forgot that it had this – that it's essentially uh, adoption exploitation horror. Uh, not the only oh, God, entry. Is it? Yeah, basically. Yeah, basically, because the whole idea is they, the, there's this couple that adopts this child, oh. and the child is troubled. And uh, I forgot that she was adopted. Yeah. yeah so uh, you know, I I have a very uh, queasy attitude towards uh, that kind of horror at this point in my life, for sure. Yeah, totally. But uh, but still. It, those are the things I tend to forget about it. I, uh-huh. I remember, uh, you know, those scenes with Samara um, climbing out of the television uh, with the creepy walk where they I think they filmed her backwards and then made it go forwards. I uh-huh. remember, uh, I think Hans Zimmer did the music and it's very effective horror music. Oh yeah. Um, and then on, t- and then on, t- yeah, on top of that, you have some great performances. Uh, did you ever see the sequel? I did. It, it'll spoil it all. It's hilarious. I saw it in the theater even. Um, <laughs> And uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, but but no, it's a it is a film that is still. Both films are considered classics in their own way, and yeah. I think they they earn that that reputation. Just if nothing else, by just scaring us so terribly and really connecting with our relationship with media. And mm-hmm. at that time, it was it, it was dealing with the VHS and, uh, and 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 how we were connecting with with this kind of uh, you know physical media. And I should say also, you know, getting into that idea of finding weird things, finding weird oh, footage. Yeah. And at that point, it was most of it was through like tape trading or I guess was, to a certain extent downloads. But I definitely remember, uh, you know, ordering up like weird dubs of the Japanese laser disc of, say, um, El Topo or Holy Mountain, uh-huh. you know. And there was this weird, you know, like, you don't, you're not really sure exactly how this got to you. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the hands that dubbed it from this format to this format and then redubbed it here, and then finally it's in my hands. I think that is actually one of my favorite types of uh, uh, story forms for horror is the the creepy found piece of media. I can remember one one of my favorite horror short stories I've read in a long time was one by Laird Barron. Uh, I think it's called Mysterium Tremendum, mm-hmm. where the narrator of the story just finds this travel guide in I think some weird used bookstore or something, but it turns out to be a nefarious sort of magic travel guide that uh, leads to very dark places. See, yeah, I love that. Nowadays, though, and and maybe they do this. I think maybe they did this on one of the recent Ring movies. It's like essentially it's got to be on YouTube, yeah. which takes the punch out yeah, of it. You know, because yeah. it's like you have the dark media, but then the dark media is on an even more um, uh, deplorable uh, social media, you know, bummer format. But it also takes away the ironic distance that makes the horror fun because YouTube just will melt your brain and kill you. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't need any like horror upgrades. The real actual YouTube is just waiting to destroy you at the moment. Yeah, though it is. I. It it is kind of comforting to think that that all the commentators at the bottom of the the ring video then uh-huh. on YouTube died seven days later. <laughs> yeah. So, like the guy says, that uh, WTF is this real? Yes, yeah. this is real. As long as we're just talking about the the ring, though, um, the, the American remake, we should point out again that that cast is tremendous. Um, Talking about Samara, uh, her mom is played by Shannon Cochran, who played uh, who played Pam's mother on The Office, and then her father is played by Brian Cox, oh, the legendary Brian Cox. Brian Cox, one of my favorite actors of all time. He he kind of makes the movie. And then the uh, the the young uh, actor playing Samara herself. I don't know if we said Samara is the ghost girl. Yeah, the ghost the girl. She's Samara in the American version, and she's uh, Sadako in the uh, Japanese version. Uh-huh. So the, the name changes. Uh, but anyway, 
in the in the in the remake, uh, Devay Case uh, Chase. I hope I'm saying her name right. Uh, this actor played Samara, and she also voiced Lilo in Lilo in in Stitch, uh-huh. the, Going, the yeah. Disney film about the you know the uh, the alien visiting Hawaii. Going to her IMDb page is hilarious because I found out she also is the girl in the Sparkle Dance troupe in Donnie Darko, <laughs> and she's the voice of the main character in the in the English dub of Spirited Away. Ah, yeah, the Miyazaki film. Yeah, oh, great. Okay, so first of all, the idea that Samara can create a surrealistic film, that she can pour like all the the nihilistic, misanthropic uh, visions in her head into a videotape and make it so potent that it can kill people, mm-hmm. uh, either just through the sheer power of the art or you know probably through some sort of supernatural, um, you know, whatever. Uh, That's a really cool trick and one that I would I would think could have been put to much more profitable use. Right. Um, like, why isn't there a sequel where like the U.S. military ends up acquiring Samara? Right. Like, that would be great because then she ends up killing all the like the evil MK Ultra get dudes. It basically writes itself. Right. But uh, sort of a crossover with the Ring and Stranger Things would have been. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Now, and, and to, to go a little deeper, though, I think in in a way this concept really really works. Though, like you can think of any creative endeavor, especially filmmaking, as an attempt to bring that ideal image, that mental image in your head, into the world. And of course, for a number of reasons, we generally don't succeed in pulling that off. And part of the reason, of course, is that is that the idea in our mind is rarely as fully formed as we think it is. I think that's exactly right. I mean, an experience I definitely have when writing, and I think you've said mm-hmm. you have this before, is I don't necessarily know what I'm going to write until I start writing. Like if I'm writing a, a scene in fiction, you know, like yeah. the, it's the process of writing that helps bring out the content. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and other issues come into play as well. And the final version perhaps feels a bit lacking. So, uh, we, you know, you can forgive a lot of us if we, th- we, we wonder, you know, imagine how perfect it would, it would have been if you'd been able to simply beam your vision directly onto a videotape. Yeah. You don't have to worry about casting it, uh, <laughs> where you're going to film all your weird art film, your art effects, how are you going to get that, that chair to go upside down. No, you can just beam it directly onto the, onto the tape. Um, and so maybe the power then of your vision would be so pure and uncut that it would just literally slay people. <laughs> well, I like that. But on the other hand, I mean, I think it's sort of it, trying to imagine this highlights the unreality of what it is you're trying to imagine. I mean, I feel like our image of the thing we want to create is never really fully formed even when it seems like it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if even people who have extremely vivid mental imagery can actually see a full completed painting that they haven't finished painting yet uh, and and not just sort of like see glimpses of little bits of color and shape that that ultimately add up to something concrete and finalized once you've you know translated it through your hand movements into that painting. I I kind of doubt that people can actually see a full painting that they haven't painted yet. Right, and maybe we maybe part of it is linguistic. You know, like we we might tend to say a sculptor might say, "I see the horse trapped in this block, and I wish to free it. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to remove all the pieces around the finished piece that I envision within it." Within reality, it's more like I see the inspiration for the thing that I am going to create. Yeah, a kind of fuzzy, low-resolution suggestion of the thing that you will create, maybe. Yeah, yeah. and then comes the hard work. Then comes the talent uh, and the skill. Uh, one more th- one more thing about the the ring, and then I'll, I'll, I'll mostly let it go. Okay. Uh, but 
ultimately, what is the message of this film? Uh, it's, it's seen because basically the whole plot is, oh, this these tapes are killing people. Why is it killing people? Oh, it's because of this little girl that died. Uh-huh. And then they, they go on this quest. They're like, oh, well, we can set her spirit free. Yeah, She'll they, be happy and everyone will be saved. And then you realize, oh, no, that doesn't work because she can't be saved. She's just evil to the core uh-huh. and everybody's going to keep on dying. <laughs> right. Uh, well, but they do figure out a way to get around the curse. Which is to keep passing it, keep spreading yeah. it. Uh, so, right. If you spread the curse to more people, she won't kill you. Yeah. Basically, the plot of, um, of uh, It Follows as well, right? But, oh, yeah. But ultimately in The Ring, though, Well, it's you like, only get temporarily spared and it follows. Right. But right. then I think in The Ring, they acknowledge what happens when, like, you know, th- that it might come back to them as well. Oh, okay. But, Maybe that's in the sequels. No, no, I think that was it was kind of at least hinted at in the first oh, one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't really... I don't try to think about the sequels. But... <laughs> But ultimately, like, the message is don't try to help people. Don't try <laughs> right. and fix the world. Like, everybody's going to – that's so just so bleak and nihilistic. Uh-huh. Um, maybe it's just too bleak and nihilistic for me now. It's the kind of thing I would have loved when I was younger. But, um, but yeah, that's a, such a, a harsh way to land it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it, it's not an inspiring story on close examination. Yeah. But, uh, but I do still stand by a lot of the visual imagery in the film, which I think holds up really well. And Brian Cox is just uh, an absolute treat. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to move on from just discussing the ring in general. And we're going to discuss this, this thing that she is supposed to do, this idea that uh, a mind could somehow imprint an image on something or in something, or in like on tape or on film. Uh, And and, uh, it's going to be one of these topics that I think, you know, draws in from a number of past episodes of both Stuff to Blow Your Mind and Invention. All right, we're back. So we're exploring the topic of psychic photography uh, or just generally being able to print the mind's eye into some manifestation in the physical world without going through any kind of normal motor translation process like drawing with your hand or explaining a mental image with your mouth. Just printing the mind's eye directly onto film or onto a piece of paper. Yes, and this is a topic that uh, if you're if you're already thinking, well, that just sounds silly, uh, well, hang with us because I <laughs> – you know, it, ultimately, I, I think it's pretty safe to say this is not actually occurring. This is not a power that human beings actually have. But uh, but by looking at it and, and considering like how we get to this point of thinking that it's possible in some cases, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what it reveals about our relationship uh, with our own mind and considerations of our own mind and mental states, as well as our understanding of photography itself. Yeah, this episode made me keep thinking back to the series on photography that we did on our other podcast, Invention. Which, if you're not subscribed yet, go subscribe to Invention. That's right. It's a journey through human techno history, and uh, yeah, we did a whole series on photography, also stuff before photography like the camera obscura, and mm-hmm. then also on motion picture technology afterwards. And really, you know, we can't, uh, you know, overstate the degree to which photography changed the world. It changed the way we thought about the world, how we thought about ourselves. It gave us new metaphors for, uh, you know, thinking about our own minds and how we're perceiving the world. And uh, it also arguably made the modern celebrity possible. Uh, So we can lay that crime at its feet as well. (laughs) Uh, But it also lent itself well to a number of pseudoscientific ideas and ultimately downright occult notions about what photography was and what it might capture. Well, sure, because if you are, say, somebody who is 
uh, adamant that there is a type of reality that we can't normally see, a very common place to go to try to find bits of evidence of that reality that we can't normally see is some kind of objective recorded media. I mean, mm -hmm. I think about the people who do uh, EVP ghost recordings, right. uh, electronic voice phenomena. Uh, again, this is not something that I think is real evidence of ghosts, but a lot of people think, okay, I, you know, I take my tape recorder to a haunted graveyard and I just leave it going and then I play it back and in through the static and the rustling and the wind, I hear voices saying things. If I can be psychological for a minute, I, I think what's mostly going on is that drawing from objective recording media like that allows people to generate the noise into which they can read a signal. Yes. And of course, photography, when it was new, provided a, a whole new way of doing something like this. Right. And then other technologies that were coming out around the, you know, in the, the same era, we also had the X-ray, uh, which we also have an, an episode of Invention about, which deals with invisible, um, you know, processes, you know, invisible rays, an invisible world. Yeah. And, and also was a big game changer in how we, we thought about reality. Sure. So uh, I was reading a little more about this, and I ran across a 2005 book titled The Perfect Medium by Shiro et al. And it, it, uh, it gets into the intersections between the occult and photography, uh, which are numerous, numerous but uh, the authors point out that they generally, they generally fall into three categories. First of all, photographs of spirits in which a spirit entity shows up in the photograph. Mm -hmm. I think we're all familiar with examples of this. Uh, uh, and then another is photographs of mediums in which the spirit medium, which is a you know human like a, someone who's leading a seance or something, is doing something supernatural. Okay, so it might be like a photograph that shows that during a seance this medium was levitating, right? Or that this medium uh, during some kind of session was generating ectoplasm, right? And that's the next one: photographs of fluids. Ah. And, and this one is interesting because uh, the, the obvious subject matter here is exoplasm, some weird substance emerging from the individual. And, and in reality, it's generally wet sheep's cloth or you know, something <laughs> right. like that. Uh, and it's easy to just think of this as ghost slime in a Ghostbusters fashion. Uh, maybe we should explain ectoplasm just a little bit more. So it was this phenomenon where a medium would claim that they can generate some kind of physical manifestation of the spirit world that shows up when you take a picture of them in the dark maybe. Yeah. Uh, and it would – yeah. So it would look like some kind of weird cloth or slime beside their head or on their body. Like ba like a big like mucus something. Yeah. Like not, it doesn't even – generally it just looks like some sort of weird mucusy cloth. They got slimed. Yeah. Or slimer. Yeah. Exactly. I mean that's where that comes from. But it's also a bit more more complex than this. This idea, you know, the, the fluids in these photographs, as Shiro and all point out, you know, it's dealing with this the, the idea that you're capturing a sense of the vital force, the soul, the thoughts, feelings, dreams, etc. All of this directly captured on a photographic plate without the use of a camera in some cases. Mm -hmm. So it, it has a strong connection to what was going on at the time in observation of X-rays and radioactivity. Mm -hmm. They point out that in France, uh, Louis Darget and others, quote, sought to photograph their own vital energy or thoughts simply by placing their fingers or foreheads on the synthesized plate. Despite numerous uh, uh, refutations by scientists who demonstrated that the traces thus obtained were no more than photographic artifacts arising out of the experimental condition themselves, attempts to record human fluids continued throughout the 20th century. 
And so this, these fluids would not just be like blood or something. They would be these, these spiritual fluids. Yeah, and it gets beyond just like mere fluids and into also things like auras. Yeah. Um, so in other words – Oh, the, people still do photographing oh, yeah. auras. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah, that's like big business. Yeah. So, you know, in other words, in the midst of all this, what was essentially future shock, you know, uh, it, uh, this emerging technology and the hidden worlds exposed through x-rays, this idea of capturing thoughts through photography carried a fair amount of weight, no matter what the science said and is still saying right. about it. Uh, so the authors point to, to, uh, to, uh, to a couple of examples, one of which is the work of uh, uh, Simeon uh, Kurlean in uh, the 1940s. Uh, Kurlean, of course, is where we get Kurlean photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived 1898 through 1978. And it's a process in which an image is obtained by the application of a high-frequency electric field to an object so that it radiates a characteristic pattern of luminescence that is recorded on photographic film. And it ultimately has to do with moisture and other factors, but, but claims were made that it captured some aspect of an individual's health, their essence, or their vital bodily energy. Okay, so and, there's some kind of like in visible quality they have that's showing up when you run this electric current and take a picture. Right. And and I think it still factors into some sort of to, to some like alternative like new age uh, systems. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I mean it's ultimately you're you're dealing with something that is perhaps a a what is you know a supernatural uh, interpretation of some visual data uh, mm-hmm. that you've created which uh, you know if, as long as you're not not you know, claiming that it's 100% scientific, I guess, you know, <laughs> go for it. Um, it just falls under the domain of um, of, 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 of spiritualism and, and religion. Mm-hmm. They also point to uh, a man by the name of Ted Sirios, who we will come back to in a bit. Yes. Because we, before we get to Sirios, we have to explore the origins of uh, this very act that Samara in the ring is, uh, is, is engaging in. Uh, this idea uh, that human beings are capable not only of photography, which photography in and of itself is an amazing accomplishment. Right. It's this, this, this Must tr- have seemed magic when it was new. Oh, absolutely. Because you, as we discussed in Invention, you know, it's, it's this perfect uh, convergence of, uh, of optical expertise and chemical expertise. Mm-hmm. And artistic expertise, all of it coming together in this new way of uh, of, of, of dealing with the visual world. Um, but then we have this added idea that people can also engage in thoughtography. Right, thoughtography. Uh, it, it goes by several names now: psychic photography, maybe thoughtography. And its modern origins are, I think you could argue that they are in Japan. So I want to talk about a researcher named Fukurai Tomokichi, uh, who is a Japanese psychologist who lived from 1869 to 1952. He was educated at Tokyo Imperial University in the 1890s. He studied in their philosophy department because this would have been when psychology was brand new. There weren't like mm-hmm. psychology departments, you know, at the, or the wouldn't have been many if there were any at the time. And he received his PhD after doing a dissertation on hypnotism. And according to the History of Japanese Psychology by Brian J. McVeigh, uh, which is my source on most of this about uh, Fukurai, uh, Fukurai played an important role in introducing the work of the pioneering American psychologist William James to Japanese scholars. Of course, William James would have been a contemporary of Fukurai's. Uh, James's The Principles of Psychology came out in 1890, and his lectures, which began 
became the varieties of religious experience, which we've talked about a number of times on the show. The, those happened around 1901 and 1902, I think. Uh, but so this would have been around the same time that Fukurai was working and, uh, and doing his dissertation and doing his early research. Now, according to McVeigh, Fukurai also published work on the subject of education and he became a lecturer and an associate professor in the field of abnormal psychology, which today we would just call the study of mental illnesses. And he, so he was a lecturer at Tokyo Imperial University on these subjects. But from here, his interests apparently took a turn for the paranormal. So beginning sometime around 1910, Fukurai became – extremely interested in spiritualism, especially in the subject of clairvoyance. Now, of course, we should note that he would not have been alone in this at the time. Uh, interest in spiritualism, mediums, and the paranormal enjoyed extreme popularity in elite circles all around the world at this time. Now, today, clairvoyance is usually understood to be a special kind of psychic power. A common definition of it is, quote, the supposed faculty of perceiving things or events in the future or beyond normal sensory contact. Now, like a lot of psychic concepts, I see clairvoyance invoked to refer to a, sort of a broad range of things. Right. Uh, so I think it can include all manner of cases of remote viewing. So like seeing things that are behind physical barriers, you know, you shouldn't be able to see through the closed door into the next room, but you can. Seeing things that are far away, you know, maybe seeing things that are happening in another country, seeing things that are separated in time in the future or the past, uh, and sometimes but less often seeing things that can't normally be seen at all, such as spiritual essences or the contents of other people's thoughts or otherwise having knowledge that you just couldn't acquire by normal means. Now, of course, it's worth noting that all of these things, uh, as psychic phenomenon, they are basically exaggerations of things that the human mind does right. through, um, uh, you know, through uh, mental time travel, for instance, imagining mm. what the future will be like, or or remembering what the past was. Uh -huh. uh, the idea of not being able to see through a wall into the next room and see what's going on there, but perform, but, but you know, conceiving a mental picture of what it might be like. Like, for instance, there's another recording studio here in the office. I cannot see in there with my mind, but with my mind, I can imagine that the guys from Stuff They Don't Want You to Know are in there right now recording something. And but you cannot imagine what they are doing. <laughs> I, but I can form a, a pretty basic idea that no. they're sitting around a table talking. It will not fit in your brain what they're doing. <laughs> it's, it's, it looks just like what we're doing, Joe. The, the, the subject matter is slightly different. But, but at any rate, I'm, uh, what I'm saying is I, I can form a pretty good idea, but I know that that is just my brain creating a simulation mm. of my environment. Right. But I mean, I think a lot of this clairvoyant stuff hinges on the concept of generating accurate knowledge. It's like all the stuff we can do with our imagination, except right. they can do it to see reality. Mm -hmm. um, and the kind of clairvoyance that Fukurai was most interested in, I think, would be covered by the first two categories of things I said. So mostly like seeing things that are far away and seeing across physical barriers. According to McVeigh, he was focused on something called toshi, which meant something like seeing through, as in seeing through barriers, and on Sinrigan, which meant the far-seeing eye. And in this parapsychology phase of his life, Fukurai was aided by another Japanese researcher named Imamura Shinkichi. Now, Fukurai studied a, a reputed Japanese clairvoyant named Mifune Chizuko and another named Nagao Ikuko. 
And McVeigh writes that in 1910, Fukurai performed a series of experiments in front of a panel of scholars and experts that he believed would demonstrate Mifune Chizuko's power to read out written messages even after they'd been sealed inside envelopes and then placed inside lead containers. And apparently an attempt to replicate these experiments the following year in 1911 was not as successful as Fukurai and Mifune had hoped. And a lot of people considered that Fukurai's research was clearly misguided after some failed demonstrations. And he and his supposed clairvoyant subjects like Nagao and Mifune were criticized in the press. And at least uh, I think it's implied that partially as a result of these failures and subsequent criticism, McVeigh writes that both Mifune and uh, Nagao Ikuko committed suicide in the year 1911. Hmm. But uh, before – I've also seen another cause of death attributed to uh, Nagao Ikuko. So I, I'm not sure about that. But McVeigh says that, that she also died by suicide. But before she died in 1911, Nagao Ikuko appeared to demonstrate a novel form of psychic power that fascinated Fukurai. And this was apart from traditional clairvoyance. This was the power that Fukurai called – Ninsha, which would have roughly translated as thoughtography. Uh, the, the Japanese term ninsha comes from the combination of nen, meaning like sense or feeling, and sha, meaning picture. And in concrete terms, this just means that Fukurai believed that Nagao had the power to use her mind's eye to expose a dry plate of photographic film, essentially burning her thoughts directly onto the physical substrate, the same way that light prints an image onto a piece of film. Now, uh, after Mifune and Nagao died, Fukurai continued his research and he published a book about clairvoyance and photography in 1913, which was widely criticized as credulous and unscientific. And Fukurai eventually lost his university position, moved on to other things, though he apparently continued to be interested in paranormal research well into his retirement in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, one weird thing is before he was publicly ridiculed and ousted from his position at Tokyo University, Fukurai was considered an elite scholar at the head of Japanese psychology. He was not, you know, just some crank writing pamphlets in his basement. He was uh, he was a top scholar and his, his academic exile had consequences. Uh, I was reading in the Oxford Handbook of the History of Psychology, Global Perspectives by David B. Baker, that in reaction to the Fukurai affair, a new head of the psychology department at Tokyo Imperial University decided that the department could rehabilitate its reputation by only focusing on, quote, normal psychology, hmm. ignoring both of Fukurai's areas of study, meaning parapsychology, like the study of psychics, and, quote, abnormal psychology, which again would amount to the study of mental illness. Uh, now, of course, saying we're not going to study mental illnesses is a huge limitation on academic psychology, uh, which the authors write in this book, uh, quote, stunted the rise of clinical psychology in pre-war Japan. Yeah, absolutely, though, because yeah, studying mental illness is a way not only of understanding how to treat mental illness, but also to understand like what uh, uh, you know how the, the the mind is functioning in individuals who are are not uh, uh, experiencing mental illness. You right. Know? I mean, it it provides a, a frame of reference. Yeah, a lot of the, for example, a lot of the biggest breakthroughs in the history of psychology have come from studying patients who have brain injuries or lesions oh, of some kind yeah. that like they show you how the brain changes when certain uh, or how the the mind changes and how behavior changes when certain physical changes are made to the brain uh, and of course, I, I've seen it alleged by a number of writers that the, the stories of people like Mifune Chizuko and uh, Nagao Ikuko 
inspired the fictional ghost in the original ring by Suzuki Koji. I, I don't know if that's uh, correct, but it's at least been alleged that there's some thread of inspiration there. Um, and, I, you know, I, I want to be a little bit sympathetic to Fukurai and consider the historical context. Like in the year 1910, it was only 15 years previous that X-rays and X-ray photography had been discovered. We, we sort of alluded to this earlier, right? Uh, the German physicist Wilhelm Röntgen, uh, he discovered X-rays by accident in the year 1895 when he was performing experiments with a type of early cathode ray tube, which was an electrical device that shoots a beam of electrons across space inside an evacuated tube from one electrode to another. And Röntgen noticed when he was running these experiments, he'd put current through the cathode ray tube in a darkened room. It would make this particular screen in the room. It was a screen of uh, barium platinocyanide, which is like a type of photographic plate. It would make that glow. And this puzzled him, of course. So he tried to run some more experiments and he discovered that he could use the cathode ray tube to expose photographic plates inside a completely dark room, except the photos were nothing like anybody on Earth had ever seen. A human hand placed in front of the tube, uh, between the tube and the plate, would create an exposure almost completely ignoring the fleshy parts of the hand but showing the bones hidden underneath the flesh. And uh, when Röntgen created an X-ray exposure of his wife's hand, she reportedly looked at the images of her bones and said, I have seen my death. Uh, yeah, and if you want more about this, we talk about this in our X-ray episode of Invention. But the, the X-ray photo was a radically, completely new way of imaging the hidden reality inside the body. It had been discovered almost completely by accident and it had been only like 15 years before this. So of course, photography itself was maybe like 80 to 90 years old at the time. And so you add to that the fact that people were proposing all kinds of other hypothetical classes of rays at the time. You remember we talked about N-rays. Yes. It turned uh -huh. out those didn't exist. But people were just thinking that there were all kinds of rays we didn't detect or understand yet, invisible forces beaming out from one object to another. Um, Fukurai was wrong, I think. He, I think he was misguided, but I don't think it was crazy at the time uh, or certainly not as crazy as it seems now to think that the hidden anatomy that governed the mind's eye and the brain might leave some kind of print on a piece of film via rays projected out of the head. I don't know. Does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have to put our, ourselves in the framework of the time, and yeah. uh, and 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 really, again, in the the, the sense of future shock that would have uh, would have still been resonating, and in, to a certain extent, still resonates. Because I think one of the one of the things that we're going to keep uh, seeing in these episodes is that, and, and, and I think this was revealed uh, again in our our photography series on invention, is that. Uh, photography is a complicated process that brings in, uh, you know, at, at least two different fields, uh, with a third if you count uh, uh, the artistic uh, uh, world as well, but certainly mm -hmm. optics and chemistry. And n not everyone really has a firm grasp on that. Like it, to, for a lot of us, it still kind of feels like magic. A Polaroid camera, uh, you know, where, where it you know, instantly gives you the, the image is sort of magic. Yeah. Uh, and when we when we don't understand something completely, it 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 allows us to engage in uh, unrealistic modes of uh, of thought about what is going on with the the, uh, the the camera, what is going on with photography. Yeah. All right, we're going to keep talking about all this, uh, but we're going to take one quick break first. All right, we're back. So uh, I want to talk just a little bit about um, this idea of remote viewing 
uh, which uh, which Fukurai was definitely involved in. Yeah. Know, uh, this idea that you know you could just you could see what's going on in, in another place, either in another room, uh, another part of the world, sealed envelope, sealed envelope, um, or another planet. Yeah. And you know another uh, example of an accomplished individual in their field who is also a prominent uh, uh, pr- proponent of remote viewing is Atlanta's own uh, Courtney Brown, hmm. uh, an associate professor in the political science department at Emory University. He also works in nonlinear mathematics. Uh-huh. Uh, so we see in uh, Fukurai an interest in hypnosis, uh, and then Brown is versed in meditation. Uh, meditation-induced light experiences can occur and have been linked to similar experiences in sensory deprivation. Uh, and, and and I've seen things like that in, in yogic meditation as well, where you will be, you know, you're you're, you're seeing lights or shapes or or some sort of uh, imagery mm-hmm. uh, that feels as if it is it is arising and it is not called forth. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh-huh. like it doesn't feel like it's something that you are consciously imagining. It doesn't feel like something that is dictated by the default mode network. You know, it doesn't feel like the sort of images. Um, or thoughts that are normally bombarding our brain. Well, I think about how often in psychedelic experiences people talk about believing they've encountered an other. Yeah. Uh, where if you just, I mean, you know, it's impossible to know for sure, but it seems like probably what's going on is they're having an internal experience with their own brain. But there are some types of experiences that we just for whatever reason feel are exogenous. It feels like it's coming from outside you. Right. And so with with the right amount of of priming, uh, expectation, and ultimately consolidation, like any one of these experiences, be it something that is due to the use of psychedelics or something that is acquired through meditation, hypnosis, etc. Because as we've discussed before, like even normal our normal sensory uh, view of the world is inherently uh, hallucinatory. Yeah. You know, it is in its in its own way an illusion. It's um, not the way things are. It's just like a useful sort of movie that we can interact with the world through. Right. So if you're having an experience like that and it feels real, right, and then you can see how even like, like certainly very intelligent people uh, can 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 come to believe that, that they are actually perceiving uh, the reality of a distant location mm-hmm. and be, become very convinced of it. And then certainly if you have uh, a name for this as well, you know, it becomes kind of established in parapsychology, then, then that also helps. That gives you even more like priming and conditioning uh, to, uh, in which to frame this experience. And, and also, I mean, just to go back to psychedelics too, and certainly our episode on psychedelics, like we see that trend uh, in the 20th century, right? This this counterculture emerged, this idea taking uh, shape that secular individuals can have a essentially a mystical experience that is not due to the machinations of gods or angels, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so uh, you know it's it's not surprising that we see all you know uh, cases like this arising. Well, I'd also say on top of that, there's just I think there's a, a very respectable humility impulse mm-hmm. that says like, okay, you know, we should always accept that there may be forces at work in our day to day surroundings that we don't fully understand. You know, we don't have a scientific theory that accounts for them yet. And I think that's a good thing to to start from. But I think a lot of like parapsychology and paranormal type people jump from there to 
because we we should acknowledge that there are lots of things about the world we don't understand yet. Therefore, remote viewing is real, right. you know, or like therefore, uh, the, you know, you can't discount thoughtography. And finding the right balance there, I think, is part of the difficulty of living the skeptical life. You know, you don't want to live a life of denialism where you just like anytime something is strange or unexplained, you just say like, well, that's nonsense. <laughs> but at the same time, you want to maintain a high standard of evidence. And that's that's the tightrope walk. I guess you've got to do if you want to be a scientific investigator, if you want to try to have the most accurate view you can of the world. And there are always going to be these edge cases where somebody's presenting, you know, evidence that maybe maybe seems compelling for some kind of phenomenon that doesn't really seem like it like it fits with well-tested theories that otherwise predict the physical world. And I think that's the case that some of these investigators have run into with psychic photography, uh, especially in the cases we'll talk about with Ted Sirius. Absolutely. I should also point out that uh, we, we always have to remember that the, uh, the CIA sunk uh, something like $20 million into the Stargate project in the 1990s in an attempt to, to ascertain the effectiveness and military potential of remote viewing. And this project was ultimately terminated and remote viewing was found uh, unfruitful to their needs. Mm -hmm. But maybe it was a conspiracy. Who knows? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I, I tend to think like if there – I mean, first of all, I, I've got major objections to remote viewing just on like a plausibility basis. Like, you know – Again, you can't rule things out just because you don't know the mechanism. But if you've got a pretty good picture of how physics works and it just – you know, there are powers proposed that don't seem to fit in any way with any – you know, any physical forces that you could identify, that's that should definitely be a red flag to start with. And then on top of that, I think there are additional plausibility problems with remote viewing, which is like if it is – if it does exist, why isn't it being taken better advantage of? Yeah. Uh, and that being said, I do come back to like what I said earlier, like – even though it's not scientifically uh, feasible, mm -hmm. as, as far as we understand it, um, you know that doesn't mean that you know people shouldn't be interested in it and uh, uh, or even you know practice it. But it, it needs to be more of I feel like it is more definitely in the line of like a spiritual or religious practice, you know. Uh -huh. um, but that's my just my two cents on it. And I think that's one of the problems that, and we're going to see that with a lot of these these people that uh, that are that are claiming these abilities, is they are not presenting them as something that is, uh, you know, ultimately like the domain of the spiritual, something that can't really be proven or disproven. But they're but they're agreeing to tests, they're agreeing to uh, to uh, uh, performances of their ability, mm. and inviting in some cases experts to to see what they're doing and to to, to try and find uh, the problems in it. Uh, so uh, uh, yeah, it's something to keep in mind as we move forward. All right, so let's come back to a figure that we've we've mentioned the name already, uh, Ted Sirius. That's uh, S E R I O S. Is it Sirius or Sirios? Sirios. Let's go with Sirios. <laughs> well, you say that, I'll say Sirius, just Sirius? to be confusing. Like Sirius Black. Uh, <laughs> um, so Sirius lived uh, nineteen eighteen through two thousand six. And he claimed to be able to create photographs on Polaroid film. Yeah. So um, you, this is an interesting figure, um, to say the least. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I was reading a little bit about this in, the, in that book, uh, The Perfect Medium. Uh, parapsychologist Stephen E. Broad writes about him. Uh, who, Broad is also a, a philosophy professor. 
and uh, he contends that Cirrus's photography is perhaps the best documented and perhaps the most impressive. Does he seem a little uh, sympathetic to maybe he he did have some psychic powers? Um, I, I mean. I encourage everyone to read uh, Broad's work for themselves because mm-hmm. he um, he certainly is more inclined to to criticize some of the um, the individuals who have been attributed as being like solid debunkers. Uh-huh. At the very least, he seems to be saying, uh, "Look, whatever Ciro's was doing, it's not nearly as debunked as you think it is." Okay. Um, and I, I'm, and he is a parapsychologist. He is a parapsychologist. So, uh, so I'm going to stress all of that. Uh, but uh, it's still an interesting read. He does seem to be more inclined to uh, entertain the possibility, though. Uh-huh. So, uh, Sirius was a Chicago bellhop who had experimented with with hypnosis, and uh, he claims that during this time he found that he could use his mind to project images onto camera film and later instant Polaroid film. And uh, he apparently demonstrated this to various folks and was quite convincing. And this uh, caught the attention of Denver uh, psychiatrist and researcher Jewel Eisenbud, who took a a, a strong interest in his work and conducted numerous trials, resulting in hundreds of images. Yeah. And I've read that Eisenbud is one of the main reasons that people really know about Ted Sirius. Like he sort of took up the cause. Like – or at least from what I read, Eisenbud claimed he was initially uh, skeptical of Ted Sirius's abilities. But then after spending time with him and seeing his photographs, he, he came more and more to believe that these powers were real and that Sirius really could project his mind's eye onto a piece of film. Yeah. Uh, Eisenbud at one point believed that Sirius was seeing via essentially remote viewing uh, the surface of the Jovian moon Ganymede yeah. and then using photography uh, to implant that image on onto film. Right. And it gets more complex than that actually because I was reading that uh, – so Sirius apparently made these images that Eisenbud later said, oh, this is the surface of Ganymede because he said that Sirius was very interested in space exploration and Mm -hmm. had been thinking about the Voyager 2 probe. Mm -hmm. And that must have been what triggered his generation of this image of the surface of of Ganymede. But at the time he generated the image, the photographs from the Voyager probe had not been taken yet. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think Eisenbud is suggesting that if these photos are real, Sirius actually not only projected his thoughts directly onto film, but also precognitively remote viewed the surface okay. of uh, of wait precognitive. Well, I guess it wouldn't have mattered whether the Voyager probe got there yet. He was seeing the surface of the moon before the probe got there, right? And and I've seen this in in other uh, you know accounts of remote viewing where they have they have essentially seen other worlds or have encountered historic figures, that sort of thing, right? Now, another thing worth noting about Sirius here is that uh, is, is that uh, even Eisenbud like points out that that uh, that Ted was definitely an alcoholic, and oh, uh, I and mean, that's sort of part of the yeah. thing, yeah. Well, but but also displayed like a lot of you know at, at times kind of like irrational behavior and uh-huh. seemed to have you know definite uh, uh, you know psychological issues. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but but anyway, this was basically Sirius's uh, process. Okay. So. He generally he, he needed to be drunk, uh, ge- generally very drunk, uh, to to perform this art. Okay, which uh, I mean, I guess that's fair enough, right? I mean, right. I mean, really, even podcasting. I remember when when, when we first started podcasting, um, 
uh, Jerry told us, like, have a little drink before you go into the podcast booth. It'll help. What? Yeah. Jerry ever told me that? Oh, well, maybe maybe <laughs> I just looked like I needed a drink at the, at the time. I don't know. But Wait, are you serious? I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, I think she was joking. But, oh, okay. Uh, but at any rate, like the idea that you would need a social lubricant to essentially to perform something. Uh-huh. Um, Either, you know, a legitimate psychic ability or to perform some sort of a trick, some sort of a um, an illusion or, uh-huh. or even a confidence trick, right? Um, so that's one part of it. Also, he preferred to hold a – what he called a gizmo in his hand <laughs> to help him focus his powers. Uh-huh. And it was a, um, a short open cylinder about an inch in diameter. And, of course, this is highly suspicious. You right. don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to suspect that the gizmo is either the heart of the trick that he is going to uh, perform or it's a decoy to distract onlookers from the actual trick. Right. Um, because he'd often place this in front of the camera lens. Like he'd get up in, into, the, into the camera lens with the gizmo and then also like you know mugging for the camera, placing his forehead in the way and uh-huh. uh, somehow using the gizmo allegedly to focus his thoughts into the camera. Yeah, he said he needed to connect his body to the camera. Uh, though there are allegations also that he was able to produce thoughtographs and uh, and and actually make images on a camera while being far away from the camera. Uh, th- that at least is alleged. But he. Most of the time, it is said, would like put his forehead right on this thing and stick it in the camera camera lens. So yeah, raises some red flags. Right, but but then the idea, yeah, is that he's essentially taking a snapshot of the mental image that he is forming in his mind, be it be it, be it a, a mental image that is formed via memory mm-hmm. or just sort of general uh, mental imaging, or it's something that is he has acquired through. Um, uh, you know, sending his consciousness to a, to a, the moons of Jupiter. Yeah. Now, I read some conflicting reports that sometimes it seems like the images he produced, he claimed, were like not what he was thinking about consciously, but just would be these unconscious kind of associative images. That's what's suggested by Eisenbud, uh, the, uh, the the Galilean moon, right, mm-hmm. uh, is that he just had the Voyager 2 probe on his mind and happened to generate an image of the surface of Ganymede. And so if we're approaching it from the you know the pro-psychic side, we can say, well, that makes sense. The mind is difficult to control. Mental images may form in the mind that you, you're not trying to summon. Certainly, we can all attest to that. On the other hand, from a purely skeptical point of view, if you're going to be drawn in and put to the test by asking, you know, being asked to think of a particular thing, how convenient would it be if you could say, well, I tried to think of that, uh, that, that bird feeder that you wanted me to imagine, but I'm just mm-hmm. so obsessed with space travel right now, uh, I gave you Ganymede instead. Right. I mean, that makes – that suggests that maybe you've already got an image of something that looks like a moon's surface on hand with you or something. Right. Uh, and I guess that gets to what the actual trick would be if there is a trick here, which – I assume there probably is. Right. Now, now in that article in The Perfect Medium, uh, Broad certainly focuses on the aspects of Ted's art that kind of continue to mystify us. He mentions, for instance, that Eisenbud offered a cash reward for anyone able to replicate Ted's results, quote, under conditions similar to those prevailing during the, during the experiments. Now, I've read that there was serious dispute about, uh, like, them negotiating with skeptics about what would be acceptable for right. those uh, conditions. Like, I think I read that uh, James Randi wanted to try to replicate it, but that Eisenbud said, well, you have to be really drunk because Ted is always really drunk when he does it. Yeah, uh, yeah, the, the the, the famous debunker uh, James Randi, who we had the privilege to meet uh, what, oh, last yeah. year, yeah. Um, 
uh, it definitely plays into some of this and is kind of uh, – if you if you read some of the more pro serious uh, material, mm-hmm. Randy's kind of portrayed as a villain. <laughs> oh, all, he, Randy is always the villain of something written by pro psychic powers people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, he, so yeah, some of these account like broad account tends to highlight the things that were not, you know, that are still a little mysterious, mm-hmm. or 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 certainly accounts of uh, replications that don't meet the same degree of replication. Like you weren't able to do exactly what Sirius is doing. Therefore, you didn't fully debunk him. Well, I've, I've read some of his defenders say, OK, people have used tricks to replicate what Sirius was doing, but they couldn't do it without those tricks being evident to people who were watching. Right. Um, I mean, the other way to think about it is, can I, can I paint the Mona Lisa? No, I cannot. Mm-hmm. Can I demonstrate some of the techniques personally? That uh, that uh, that the artist used to create the Mona Lisa, uh, certainly. We uh, have to take into account that Sirius, assuming again that he's not a psychic, uh, that he's not a uh, not ca- capable of photography, mm-hmm. that he's just a, a performer, an illusionist, uh, a, you know, a trickster. Uh, there is still an art to what he is doing. Uh, there is still a performance aspect, a charismatic aspect to it, sure. and there are aspects of that that are going to depend. In part on like innate charisma, but also in in practice, in in like sheer devotion to uh, to the trick, and I think you can't discount that. And on likewise, you can't expect a debunker to rise to that level of performance. Well, I guess you can expect them to try, but I mean that that's one thing that uh, you, you know. As long as we're probing the depths of the unexplained, uh, you could say, well, you know, there's some kind of mystical power that this person has that we just don't have the power to explain yet. Or you could say that uh, there's an extreme talent this person has for performing a trick yeah. that hasn't been explained yet. Yeah, because certainly one of the things that would come into play is sleight of hand. Right. Because the, the main charge is that is that uh, uh, Sirius had, um, it, it kind of varies. Sometimes there's talk of just using a microfilm. Um, or using microfilm affixed to a marble, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, a film affixed to the end of a tiny tube. This or, would be like inside the quote gizmo that he right. put up against the camera, right? Because that's the obvious, right? Is that the gizmo contains something, and if it contains something, some film would be ideal, yeah. Uh, because then you have that pre-existing photograph that can be the thing that he imprints. Mm-hmm. Um, Skeptic Terrence Hines also charged that Ted used a secondary tube about one inch long with a tiny magnifying lens that could hold a small slide. And then he would conceal this within the gizmo, but also he could use it when the gizmo was taken away. Again, getting into that idea that the gizmo's not merely useful as uh, something to uh, uh, to hide the trick, but also can be used as a distraction, can be the thing that, oh, when it's taken away, look, I can still do it. I don't even have the gizmo on me. Right. And it was alleged that sometimes he could, I mean, usually he used the gizmo, but it's alleged that sometimes he did it without the gizmo. Right. Now, there were a number of exposés at the time that claimed to show that uh, Ted Sirius was a fraud. Uh, the, the entry in the Skeptics Dictionary by Robert Todd Carroll suggests that two amateur magicians and photographers named Charlie Reynolds and David Eisendrath uh, exposed Sirius as a fraud. Uh, basically, they went and spent a weekend with him and Jewel Eisenbud and they saw his stuff and they, they came to the conclusion that he was a fraud and wrote this up in the article. Uh, and Reynolds and Eisendrath claimed to have spotted Sirius 
Urias, quote, slipping something inside his little gizmo before demonstrations. And they think it was a picture of something that Sirius wanted to show up in the camera exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also uh, published an article explaining their findings in an October 1967 issue of Popular Photography. It's a photography magazine. Now, according to the skeptic investigator Joe Nichols' account of uh, Sirius's confrontation with magicians and sleight-of-hand experts, quote, at one point during the session, after an exposure was made, a magician asked to examine the paper tube to see if there was anything inside. This would be the gizmo, right? Right, the gizmo. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sirius backed away, putting his hand in his pocket. Now, that's suspicious behavior. Uh, but then, weirdly, during this session, Sirius was unable to produce photographs. So apparently he'd been using the gizmo. They said, let me see the gizmo. He wouldn't show it to them and then none of the pictures came out anyway. There were no photographs. Uh, and he and Eisenbud blamed the, quote, hostile atmosphere for interfering with Sirius's powers. Mm. This is always a red flag also, yeah. I think. But uh, there are still plenty of people, I think, who hold out for psychic photography, claiming that Ted Sirius's powers were real and could not be explained. And uh, he's got defenders who say that some of his feats are just impossible to explain. For example, uh, I was reading claims in an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which was about a gallery exhibit of Sirius's photographs, which <laughs> I would like to see. That would be fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're interesting images, certainly uh-huh. when you know the background for them. Well, especially if you just think about them as work of art, not mm-hmm. as like displays of real psychic powers. Um, but to quote from this article, quote, on occasion, volunteers were asked to attend the experiment with a photograph sealed in a cardboard backed manila envelope. Sirius then managed to reproduce the image with no prior knowledge of it. So again, that's like double psychic powers. That's not just the photography, which would be a feat even if he was looking directly at what the photo should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I guess, seeing into this uh, envelope. If I'm reading that right, I, I don't know. That might also be suggesting that they just arrived with it sealed and then showed it to him and he re- reproduced it. Either way, I mean, if you saw that, I wouldn't say that would prove it was real, but that would be impressive. You know, you'd yeah. be like, well, that that's either real or some impressive trickery. I'd lean toward the latter. Um, but in, in other cases, he apparently managed to produce what appeared to be images of landmarks from up above, like aerial views that his supporters claimed could not be explained through trickery. Uh, but it seems like he stopped doing his thing after the late 1960s, which seems a little weird. Yeah, especially considering he lived until, until 2006. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, that's that's a lot of time to not – at least not be publicly doing this uh, – displaying this uh, this ability. Uh but then again, um, you know, we, we do have to come back to you know the fact that uh, Eisenbud himself wrote that Sirius was a you know psychologically disturbed alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you can come up with various uh, you know reasons that somebody uh, with that kind of uh, with, a, with with those kind of demons would not engage in their art. Now, he uh, wasn't the only one in the later 20th century to get in on the psychic photography thing. Over the years, a lot of figures, including Uri Geller, uh, got into psychic photography. Uh, one, one of Geller's many demonstrations was that he would leave the lens cap on a camera, place the camera to his forehead, and then take a picture, supposedly saying, you know, the same kind of thing. I'm using my mind's eye to imprint upon the film. And then the photo would reveal whatever he had been imagining. Uh, again, James Randi shows up, as he often does whenever Uri Geller claims something. James Randi uh, criticized this and other psychic photography as having two main explanations, either using a handheld device to project the image into the camera lens as the photo is taken or loading the camera with pre-exposed film already bearing the desired image. Mm. 
And the latter seems to be the case with a uh, later 20th century alleged psychic named uh, uh, Masuaki Kiyoda who claimed to be able to produce thoughtographs on film again. And uh, skeptical critics such as Joe Nickel have pointed out that when uh, Masuaki Kiyoda was asked to perform his thoughtography under controlled conditions for a TV crew in London, he couldn't produce the images. And Nickel claims that uh, it was only times when he was able – uh, to get the film and have it alone with him, like basically to get hold of the film and have it in a private place before the test that he could demonstrate his powers, which again makes you think he was doing something to the film before it was loaded in the camera. All right. Well, on that note, we are going to have to call it for episode one of this exploration. Uh, but we are going to return in a second episode where we're going to Continue to explore this idea. Like, how would it work if this were possible? Like, what what pot, what can we grasp onto in the the labyrinth of the human mind and the complexity of our our our, our sensory uh, perception? Uh, but also, what can this question reveal about the reality of of mental imagery and how that happens in the brain? Which is a, a fascinating, mysterious, and even spooky topic on its own. Even though we don't necessarily credit the reality of psychic photography, there's a lot of spooky stuff going on when you picture something. Right. And uh, we'll probably talk about The Ring a little bit more, uh-huh. and we'll probably bring up a few other uh, films, such as uh, Scanners. So, uh, hey, be sure to tune in for that episode. And tune in for all of our episodes in October, which are going to be Halloween-flavored. Uh, and uh, we encourage you again to check out Invention. If you haven't already, you can find it wherever you get your podcast. You can find the, the website at inventionpod.com. If you want to support our show, the best thing you can do is rate and review it wherever you have the power to do so. And make sure you have subscribed. Huge thanks, as always, to our awesome audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.